If you would, open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 12. I'll read verses 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. The context of this passage is, of course, a race that we are supposed to run. A few weeks ago, we discussed the idea of getting ready to run. This is a difficult race. And it's not something that you can sprint from one side of the house to the other and be done. You've got to get ready for this race. Your lives must be always about the business of getting ready to run the next lap or the next stretch from checkpoint to checkpoint in this race. And you must lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. If you don't, you won't be able to run. That's the point of this passage. Let us run with endurance. And that comes after it says, lay aside every weight. You're not going to successfully run the race that God has set before you with endurance if you're letting sin cling so closely. And you're not going to run successfully in this race that God has set before you if you're letting distractions, things that in your life may be very good, but that make it difficult for you to run the race. And there are a lot of them. And it's a difficult race. It's a perilous trek, as we talked about a few weeks ago. You have need of endurance. As the author of Hebrews says in chapter 10, you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And so he equates this idea of doing the will of God with running this race that is set before us. God is the one setting this race before us. He doesn't want it to be easy. That's part of the point of this text. That might be offensive. That might not land on you properly. But he doesn't want it to be easy. Because otherwise, there'd be no increase of our faith, no increase of endurance, no increase in the virtues that you will need to endure. No trust. 
If it's easy, there's no need for trust. Is that burdensome or heavy sounding to you? Something needs to be said about the purpose of preaching here. Paul, uh, Jesus asks the people when the topic of John the Baptist comes up, what did you go out to see? Why were you going out there to listen to this guy? What what were you doing? Why come and listen to the preaching of God's Word? The potentially offensive assumption of preaching, biblical preaching, is that every one of us has significant changes we need to make in our lives to become more like Jesus. Significant changes. And significant changes need to be made in our lives in order to even run the race to get more like Jesus. That's the potentially offensive assumption, just as Jesus says, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. His word carries with it obligation to change, to do something, to lay aside things, to alter your life's course, to change the way you're doing things. It's popular to alter the purpose of preaching. It becomes something like a sales pitch where i got to do a really good job to convince you of something. Or it can become a pep talk. All we really lack is motivation, right? Jesus has saved us. We're good. Just tell us something really good and inspiring so we can leave here amped up to obey Jesus. Is that a point of preaching? Preaching is meant to lay our hearts bare before the Lord, and to be shown with the clear light of the text how it is that we must change. Have you been moved off of dead center at all? If not, preaching isn't doing its job. And that's the assumption of this passage. All of us, without exception are taking on weights and insisting on trying to run with them. And we are, all of us, without exception, inviting entangling sins into our lives that make it impossible to get into stride. And all of preaching, not just a sermon over this text, all of preaching is meant to convey this. God is saying to you, set those things aside so you can run after Christ and gain the reward. Your eternal reward hangs in the balance. It really does. That's the point of preaching, to show you where you need to change, how you need to run, so that you can gain the reward. I'm not here to give you a pep talk so that you can go out feeling better about yourselves and your lives. I'm here to exalt Christ so much that in seeing Him as He is, You will be willing to change anything and everything about your life for the sake of gaining Him. And if there's no change, then one or all of these things are at issue here. One, maybe I'm not lifting up Christ enough. Maybe I'm not presenting Him fully in His glory enough to you. Or number two, maybe you're not listening or we are together blocking our vision of Him with these weights and entangling sins. 
or there is hardness of heart. Maybe I am portraying him rightly. He's there to be seen in the text. Or maybe there's hard, and, and maybe the response is hardness of heart. You see him, but you love the weights and the sin more. And I can't see into your heart to know which is which. He says, let us lay aside. Let us lay aside every weight. The assumption for the author himself is that each one of us individually and as a group must be in the habit of laying aside anything that would impede our pursuit of Christ. Be it a sin or be it a virtue by the world's standards. Be it something that's terrible or something that is esteemed. So, what have you recently laid aside for the sake of running after Christ? Anything? Not for other honorable reasons, maybe financial gain, more stability, education, whatever it is. What have you even painfully set aside, laid aside for the sake of Christ? For the sake of gaining Him, what behaviors, habits, mindsets, attitudes have you intentionally crucified in your life for the sake of gaining Christ? If you can't positively answer that question, you have serious issues with this text because we all have to be about the business of it. And you're not running. And again, I cannot see into your heart. It may be very internal things that you have, in fact, set aside. And I'm not trying to discourage you. I'm trying to provoke you, exhort you to love and good works. But is there anything at all? Anything at all? And this is not rehashing. This is an essential issue for this text, this idea of looking to Jesus. There's a dual relationship of the weights and the sins to this vision of Jesus. I spoke a few weeks ago that only in looking to Christ will we have the proper motivation to set aside, lay aside the things that we really need to set aside and lay aside. Otherwise, there's no real deep God-honoring motivation to do any of that. It's just legalism or some type of uh, gaining of honor or impressing other people. But it is also the case that if you don't lay these things aside, You won't desire to gain Christ. There is a cumulative effect of allowing these sins and weights to impede your race where you won't want to gain Him. There's a cumulative effect of getting your own way and a cumulative effect of sin that makes the race not appealing and that removes the glory from our eyes of the Christ that is the prize. Some of you might not be able to see Him much at all through all the cloud and the weeds and the weights that you've invited into your life and allowed to surround your heart. You can't see the real desire to run this race. You've allowed distractions to rule over every segment of your life, even in this room. And so you can't see Him. You don't know why you should give up things like Paul gives up things to gain Christ because you just don't see him. 
He's not that glorious to you. And the reason I'm saying this now is when we get to the central exhortation of this text to look to Jesus. Some of you, or maybe all of us to some degree, it may go in one ear and out the other. Maybe it's too theoretical, too theological, or too emotional for some of us. Maybe you may not even know what it really means to look to him. And this text asserts, the author is claiming, that if we don't, it means that we have sins or weights that have made it almost impossible to do so. And that's why I'm pleading with you, before we get to the centerpiece of this passage, to take a hard look at yourself and your life and ask, have I set anything aside for the sake of gaining Christ? Or have I only set things aside that are convenient to me? That makes sense even if Christ is not raised? What have you done in your life that only makes sense if Christ has been raised? That's the question. Part of your assurance depends on it. And so we get to our main statement, looking to Jesus. This is the central idea, but let's ask this. What does this mean? Seems simple enough, looking to Him. But understand, this is not talking about the eyes that are in your head. He's talking about the eyes of our hearts. This is how Peter explains it in 1 Peter 1, 8-9. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You don't see Him with your eyes, but you see Him with your heart and you love Him. Or Galatians 3, 1-2. This one is key. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your very eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? That text is so key because he's claiming to the Galatians who were not there in person at Calvary, Golgotha. They weren't there. And he's saying that in the preaching of the gospel, Jesus Christ himself was publicly portrayed as crucified to their eyes. Not to their eyes, but to their eyes. The eyes of their hearts. So in the preaching of the gospel, Jesus Christ stands forth in a way that you can in fact see. By hearing with faith. Looking to Jesus. Consider this. God insists to be known only through the person of Jesus Christ. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you've known me, you've known the Father. If you've seen me, you have seen the Father. It's all through Christ, all and only through Christ now. But Jesus Christ insists to be known only as clothed with his gospel. We will always only know him as the lamb that was slain. The vision in the revelation to John depicts a lamb standing, but as if it had been slain. 
The triumphant lion is also the slain lamb. He will always be so. We will always only know him through the gospel. Not crucifixes, not paintings, not stained glass windows, not movies, not shows or any other images. The gospel, the word of Christ. The true words about Christ portray him not more accurately than artistic renderings or movies or shows, but the true words about Christ are the only way that he can be portrayed accurately. Maybe for some of you this is hard to consider how you might look to Christ because your relationship with the Scripture is lacking. You don't know the Word of Christ because you have not invested the necessary time to know what the Scriptures teach of Him. So read of Jesus Christ. Know what the Scriptures teach about Him so that you can, in fact, look to Him. Evidence suggests that the early church met every day to hear the Word of Christ. Maybe it wasn't because out of some sense of obligation, oh, I guess i got to go to church. Maybe they just wanted to see their Messiah. What about you? I'm not saying come here every day. Not, no one's going to be here some days. But what is your relationship with the Word of Christ? Do you crave it because you want to see your Messiah in the words of Christ? This is why the author of Hebrews himself says, exhort one another every day. This isn't just a, a soul coaching activity we're called to. The idea is to present Christ to each other in the words of Christ to each other. There's a few things to note about this statement, this central claim, looking to Jesus. Number one, it's not passive. It's active. This isn't like the Mount of Transfiguration. Do you remember the story? Jesus takes the disciples aside by himself. Peter, James, and John goes up the mountain. And they're just hanging out. They're like, well, maybe we're going to get a special lesson. And then Jesus is transfigured before them, and they see him with Elijah and Moses, and they hear the voice from heaven. They didn't ask for that. They didn't pursue that. They were just following Jesus, go up on top of the mountain. Your encounter with Jesus now is not like that. It's not passive. It's not something you stumble into or show up and experience. It is an active thing for you. Listen to David in Psalm 27. You have said, so this is David speaking of God, you, God, have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. As a message to all of us, young people, old, all of us. Can you say that? Your face, Lord, do I seek. The first words of Jesus spoken in John's Gospel are this. What are you seeking? What are you seeking? And he says to the disciples after they answer, come and you will see. Does your heart echo with the Greeks who come seeking Jesus, who say to the disciples, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Is that the cry of your heart? 
This isn't just something you open up a book and like, well, there it is. It must be a craving in your heart to see your Messiah in the words of Christ. Active. It is a summons to a lifestyle of seeking his face. John Owen, I think, said it best. And if you just want a clinic on the way to treasure and behold the glory of Christ, read John Owen's The Glory of Christ. But here's what he says. Herein, speaking of the glory of Christ, he says, Herein would I live, herein would I die, hereon would I dwell in my thoughts and affections to the withering and consumption of all the painted beauties of the world, unto the crucifying all things here below, until they become unto me a dead and deformed thing. Let everything pass away. Let everything in this life, every beauty and joy that can be had, just pass away and become deformed and dead to me. I will stay fixed on the glory of Christ. And he makes a later point saying that you can't claim to want to see and treasure the glory of Christ one day in heaven if you don't show any evidence of wanting and desiring it and seeking it now. Number two, second thing about this exhortation, looking to Jesus. It's not a one-time deal. It's continual. Sorry for the grammar lesson, but this is a participle. He does not say, having looked to Jesus, or since you once looked to Jesus. Looking to Jesus. This is a direct action of the will to continually set the eyes of your heart upon him. It's a new task every day to get up and look to Jesus and to maintain your gaze on him throughout the day and to help others do the same. There is a danger in relying on these spiritual experiences or emotions or feelings. We can call it something like our God moment or it was just a God thing. The Scriptures don't care much about that. And I don't and you shouldn't. Tell me of your sight and love towards Jesus Christ today and your trust of Him today and your desire to seek the face of your Lord today. That's what matters. That's what the Scriptures care about. Notice the difference. God changed my life. Or even something like, I had a life-changing experience with Jesus. Versus what Paul says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That's today. That's now. That is Emanating his life. Determining how he's going to make decisions. Is that you? I know that's difficult and it might be burdensome to hear that this is what we need to seek. But do you see how much better it is? How much more joy giving that view of Christ is if you can see him. Than some stale memory of an experience a long time ago. Because... The enemy will call those into question your whole life and rob you of assurance. But he can't do anything about your beholding of the glory of Christ and treasuring him. 
what Paul has, what we should have, what you can have, even today, is real, tangible, looking to Christ Himself and His future promises. Number three. This is not something, this should be obvious, it's not something that you stumble into. This looking to Jesus, this clear perception of Him, this isn't something we stumble into. It implies effort. I don't think this is obvious most of the time. The phrase means something like this. Look away from the immediate surroundings to something else, namely Jesus. Look, this word look, could be translated fix your eyes or fixing our eyes. This is effort to set and hold a true gaze upon the goal and the prize of Jesus Christ himself. It's an exhortation. Let us be looking to Christ, he's saying. It's not an option to say, well, if it's going to happen, God will have to do it. I can't see Jesus very clearly, so I'm just waiting for God to show him to me. Don't think that. We should be praying for God to manifest Christ to us. I pray something like that at the beginning of every sermon. I ask you to pray the same things, that God would show Christ to us. He does do that. But there are real things that you must do and things that you possess the power to do because of what Jesus has already done in your heart by the Spirit to set your eyes on Christ. And the things we can do in order to do this might not be what you think. We could offer the Sunday school answer, maybe. Jesus, Bible, prayer, Holy Spirit. Most of the time, those are the right answers. How, how do we set our eyes on Jesus? How, do, how is it that we uh, fix our eyes on Him, look to Him? This is too important a question to just give a cliche answer to. I'll just read your Bible. That'll help a ton. But there's more here. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. To see Jesus in this way, to fix our eyes on him, requires knowing and remembering who he is and what he has done and will do. What version of Jesus do you present to the eyes of your heart? Is it the baby in the manger? Is it a middle-aged Jewish man? An image of an actor? Do you think it's an accident that we have no description of the physical appearance of Jesus? We have physical descriptions of other people, and we get more details about the physical appearance of John the Baptist. Nothing about Jesus. Do you think that's an accident? The apostles certainly could have done so. They could have gone on and on about his physical appearance. But the Holy Spirit ensured that they would not. They wouldn't tell us a thing about what he looked like. Rather, we have his words. He is the word. And we have the truth about his work. So when we think on Christ, we should get rid of other things and focus on his words and his work. 
This idea of him being the founder of our faith, it has the idea of being a forerunner or a champion. This is a, another translation. The champion in the exercise of faith and the one who brought faith to its complete expression. We should remind our hearts and think on the glory and gravitas of what he did. His work, what he accomplished on the cross. And describing Jesus this way, the way he does, the founder and perfecter, is, is, is a little bit different. I think some of us can make the mistake of thinking, well, what this means is sort of like what it means in another place. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. That's not what he's saying here. He's saying, though that's certainly true and certainly encouraging, he's saying that part of what it means to be about the business of fixing your eyes on Jesus is an act of the will to consider Jesus and his own heroic triumph in the same long endurance race of faith. To consider him as our prime example. He is the premier witness. He is the faithful witness. He's the champion, the forerunner, in the sense that he has already crossed the finish line. And he is standing there, showing us the way, beckoning to us to cross it with him. And he hasn't finished the race in a way that we can't see. We can see the whole thing from start to finish, the way Christ ran his race that it was set before him. It'd be like going on a long-distance run, but getting first-hand account and encouragement from a person who has just run it before you. But he's not just our example. He is our goal. He is the means and the end, not either or. If Jesus is just a means for you to gain heaven, you're not going to gain heaven. And if He is just an end, but you're not using His grace and His strength to get you there, you won't get there. He's the means and the end. He's our example. And learning from Him, walking how He walked, Living like Him, we will run our race well. But it must also be that He is our prize and goal. There at the finish line, drawing us to Himself. That's what it means to look to Christ, the founder, the champion, and perfecter of our faith. We see Him in all that He accomplished by His life. Standing there at the end, beckoning us and strengthening us until the last day who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. There's somewhat of a double meaning here. Um, it's interesting because the, work be, the word being translated for, for the joy that was set before him, if you're looking at the ESV and I think the NASB as well, uh, it's actually the Greek word anti or anti. And so it could mean something like this. Instead of the joy before him, he endured the cross. So if that's what we should take it to mean, it means something like this. He, he set aside or exchanged all the earthly joys he could have 
that were his by right. And instead of those, instead of that joy, he endured the cross, suffering all of that, not regarding the sufferings as something too great to endure. Or it can also mean something like four. It's used that way in Matthew twenty twenty eight. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Same word. In this way, the verse would mean something like this. In exchange for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, disregarding the shame. Meaning, in view of the joy that he was going to gain, he endured the cross, not regarding the shame too high a price to pay. So which one is it? Convincing arguments can be made on both sides, but I'm not convinced we have to choose. I think both may be at play here. They're both true and supported elsewhere in Scripture, but in just a few verses, the author uses the same word again. He says, See that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for... A single meal. Same word. That's the only other place the author of Hebrews uses it. So what we have here, I think that the author is intentionally setting up, is a comparison between Jesus and Esau. Are you going to be like Jesus? Are you going to be like Esau? In both cases, something was given up. Jesus gave up earthly joy, happiness, absence of pain. He divested himself of glory for a time. Esau gave up his birthright. In both cases, something was desired and gained. Jesus desired joy, happiness, the glory that he was to receive. Esau wanted a kind of happiness, temporary happiness, and the absence of hunger. In both cases, something was despised. Esau despised or disregarded his birthright. That's exactly what Genesis 25, 34 says. Jesus despised or disregarded the cost, the shame. In both cases, the exchange bore out. They both made an exchange, and the exchange bore out. Esau got shame and regret. Jesus gets greater happiness, glory, and joy seated at the right hand of God. So we could paraphrase it this way to carry both senses. Looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who exchanged his joy in enduring the cross, not regarding the shame as too great a price to pay for the joy of being seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And let me tell you, everyone in this room is making a trade. You can't live your life without making some kind of trade. And there's no in-between. You're either making trades like Esau, or you're making trades like Jesus. Young people, even now, you're making trades. You are exchanging temporary pleasures for future joy with the Lord, or you're exchanging those future joys and glory for temporary joy. It's happening even right now. All of us are making trades. 
And so when we look to Christ, we behold the one who made the ultimate trade. He exchanged even his own life and endured all the suffering. He, he didn't regard the suffering and the shame as too great a price to pay or too great a trade to make for the joy of being seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Those are the thoughts we must fill our minds with that help us look to Jesus to consider what it is He did, the world-changing, amazing nature of His life and death and what He was thinking while He did it. And is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Looking to Jesus or considering His words and His works means you cannot leave Him on the cross or in the ground or even in His resurrected form or going up in the clouds in some sense. To think on Christ is to consider Him and His place in the universe. Ruling in power at the right hand of God because of his sufferings. He earned the right to sit at the right hand of the throne of God in the eyes of all the angels and anyone who would ever behold it. Colossians 3, 1 through 3 puts it this way. If then you have been raised with Christ, and that's a big if, looking to Jesus does not appeal to the person who hasn't been raised with Christ. If I've been just speaking like a madman up here, maybe it's because you haven't been born again and you don't really care to look at Jesus because He's not your treasure and Lord. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. Hebrews 1.13 says it this way, speaking of Christ, And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? (laughs) Do you need a soul-steadying encouragement this morning in view of the times? Consider Jesus seated at the right hand of the throne of God, even standing to minister in the holy places waiting for that time where all His enemies will be made a footstool for His feet. It's going to happen. The nations will rage. They will plot in vain. They will take counsel together against the Lord and His anointed. The one who sits in heaven laughs. Consider Him. The author continues in verse 3. Consider Him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. This is why verse 3 belongs in the introduction because the point of this whole chapter is to encourage us to run the race set before us with endurance. And the way we do that and not grow faint-hearted is to consider Christ, to look to Him and to think on what He did and all the hostility He endured, the shame that He didn't deem too high a price to pay to bring all of this about. Look to Him. Fix our eyes on Him. 
This is also means that we're meant to consider him. It has the same meaning. The author has already exhorted us in, in multiple places in, the, in Hebrews to consider Christ. Think on him. Fix your eyes on him. Meditate on what he has done. Run through it again and again and again. Find guides who are able to show you how to better consider Christ and to present him and his works before your eyes. Live in the Bible and know what it is he has done. See your Messiah. Seek the face of your Lord. But this has a special meaning for us as we consider, in addition to his triumph, his humiliation. As we consider this hostility that he endured, it gives us the stability and foundation that we need to trust God in a way that will sustain us. If Jesus merely came as a conquering king, how could that encourage us to run the race set before us? He comes in power, speaks a word with the sword that will come from his mouth at the end to lay waste to all his enemies. What encouragement would that be for us if that was how he came in the first? It wouldn't. There'd be no solidarity. That's part of the burden that the author of Hebrews feels in explaining to us how we can have a sympathetic high priest. He was tempted in the ways that we were, yet without sin. The hostility he endured from sinners against himself is more than we can imagine, not just in the moment of his execution, but every day of his life. You can hear it. It's almost like his... The, the veil gets pulled back on occasion and you see what kind of torment of soul it must have been for him every day. Remember the story. The father who has the son who's oppressed by demon has epilepsy. He comes to Jesus and he says, please help my son. Your disciples weren't able to cast this out or to help him at all. And Jesus says, faithless generation, how long am I going to have to put up with you? And these are his disciples. And then the centurion comes to him and says, hey, I know I'm not worthy for you to come to my house. If you'll just say the word, I know that you'll that he'll be healed. And he says, I haven't found anyone in Israel with faith like this guy. The sea and cesspool of unbelief was hostility against him every moment. Can you imagine speaking as the I am himself and not breaking forth in wrath against the religious leaders who were oppressing the people. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. In short, the meaning of this text is that considering the gospel, believing in the gospel, the work of Christ, is not just what saves us, but it's what keeps us saved until the end. The way that Jesus will lose none that the Father has given Him is by working through His Spirit in our hearts to set our minds on Him, to fix our eyes on Him, to consider, reconsider, and think on the Gospel. And it was not just some emotional hostility he felt every day. He 
drank the cup of the wrath of God to the dregs and willingly submitted himself towards the most brutal form of execution the evil Roman Empire could imagine. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Like a lamb that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. That hostility, that I will trust in God and not say a word type of enduring hostility against himself is the treasure of the example of Christ. We must obviously follow his example, but bask in the reality that he did it to save us. That joy set before him, the joy of his people, was worth more than all of that hostility. So, look to Christ. If you've never seen Him before, today, may today be the day of salvation. That you would behold this one who endured all this hostility that didn't consider all that shame and pain too great a price to pay to bring many sons to glory. That extension of grace, that depth of love on display in the cross and in his victory over death in his resurrection and his ascension to heaven and his being seated at the right hand of the throne of God. All of it together, maybe all of that bunched together in the glory of Christ might move us off dead center today. And by so doing, we will receive the things promised. Let's pray. Father, we do need you. We do not possess the will or the wisdom or the ways most of the time to set the eyes of our hearts on Christ. And so I pray by your spirit that you would give us the motivation and the will and the wisdom to do so. But at the same time, give us confidence because we know that your spirit yearns for the glory of Christ. Help us rest in his work and press into his work and not grieve the Holy Spirit by holding on to the weights and the sins that so easily beset us. Give us that clear vision of Christ clothed in his gospel. And may it happen today. May we disregard the things that we might have to give up for pursuing him. It's in his name we pray. Amen.